Built Not Born, episode 37. I'm Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us. Today's guest is John Livens. John Livens has a remarkable story to tell. He was born in Latvia in Eastern Europe in 1933 and is a survivor of both the Soviet and Nazi occupations in World War II. John found himself on the KGB most wanted list at the age of seven due to his family's ties to the Latvia government. John's father was abducted by the Soviets and sent to Siberia where he died in a gulag. John and his family were then smuggled through the Czech border with the help of an American GI and his mom's ingenuity into Germany. Then one day, John's family boarded a refugee ship off to America where he settled in Boston and lived the American dream. John attended Harvard, has two degrees from Harvard University, went into business, and had an incredible career in wealth management. John retells this incredible story in his book, An Unexpected Journey, which is available on Amazon. I was so excited to get John on the show. He has an amazing story to tell of survivorship, of resilience, and how tenacity and skill all come together. And when opportunities arise, you seize them. John is the epitome of the American dream. And especially today, it's important to keep history like this alive. Because if there's one thing we've learned through history, is that people have not learned through history. As we look at the headlines today, they are not that dissimilar to 80 years ago in Latvia, what John went through with Soviet invasions and personal freedoms taken away I hope you enjoy. So, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with John Livens, survivor of the Soviet and Nazi occupations in Latvia, immigrant to America, Harvard graduate, author of the book, An Unexpected Journey, and the epitome of the American dream. And remember, life is built, not born. John Livens, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for in- including me. We're, we're excited to speak to you. For our listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, who are you and what do you do? Right now, I'm retired, but I had uh, quite an interesting career. As I was born in Latvia, which is south of Estonia and east of Russia now, as well as uh, north of Lithuania. So it's a relatively small country in terms of population, a little less than 2 million. But since it's been located in an area between the Russians and then the Western Europe, there's been continuous warfare and the allegiances have switched back and forth going back to the times of Vikings. It's a very favorable geopolitical position, but it's not very good for the people who live there. So they switched their loyalties. Initially in the 1200, it was ruled by German bishops, then it was ruled by Poland, then it was ruled by Teutonic Knights, and it was ruled by Sweden for over 100 years, and then for by the Imperial Russia, then it was independent, and then again, the Soviet Union took it over and it became independent again in 1992. I was born in Riga, the capital, but I spent my 
childhood in our country place, which was a fairly large estate. My parents were in there most of the time, but I was brought up by governesses and otherwise, and I had a very happy childhood. Then when the Soviets took it over, I had a distinction at age seven being on their wanted list, including with the whole family. But my sister was only five and she was in the same list. <laughs> and we were lucky to escape. And then we lived under the German occupation for about a couple of years. And then as the war moved toward Latvia, we moved to Germany and saw the end of the war there. We were there for almost five years. And then we had an opportunity to come to the United States, which has really changed my life. So you grew up in Latvia. How did you and your family wind up on the Soviet wanted list? What happened there? I wish I could tell you that I've done something remarkable, but unfortunately at age six, I couldn't have, nor my parents. My, my father worked for the government and my family had a long association with the country going back several centuries. And I think the Soviets were basically trying to eliminate potential leadership of the country. And that would categorize my parents as part of it. We were not the only ones. And one night they arrested 16,000 people. And during one year occupation, the Soviets either deported or killed about 2% of the population. And that was in the beginning, the first year. What year did this happen? The, the Soviets took over Latvia in 1940, and they were driven out in late 41. Therefore, and they driven out by what? The Nazis? Who who drove? Who drove? Yes, the- then they then they took it over. Actually, initially, when the Germans came in, there were so many people killed by the Soviets that they had a generally positive attitude initially toward the Germans, which of course faded with time. How old were you when the Soviets were taken over by Nazis came in? How old were you when that happened? When the Soviets were there, I was about seven. And when the Germans took it over, I was about eight, nine. And so I lived under both of these occupations. Wow. If if we go back to the Soviets. So what do you remember as a young child living under Soviet occupation? I do remember how the attitude of people suddenly changed. And I will give you a personal experience. I was at school. I was probably barely seven years old. And they had this really cute girl with blonde pigtails sitting in front of me. I used to pull on her pigtails and we used to play sometimes. And she thought I was nice, but that's at least I remember. Then when the Soviets took over, she turned to me one day and say, you rich landowners exploited the working class people. Now we are taking all our property. And I said to myself, what have I done? I haven't done a thing, but the life had changed. And that's the attitude of some of the people there. So they basically seized all the property and you own nothing. Do you remember what it was like when the Nazis take over? Was it battles in the street? How did that happen? Actually, they attacked the Soviets from the south and they wanted to run over Latvia very quickly because they were headed toward Leningrad. And so they crushed the initial Soviet resistance very quickly and they just took over the country. So there was relatively little fighting, except a little bit in the capital. That's where so the Soviet army got decimated early on. Do you remember that time period? 
Sure. I remember what happened is since they did not arrest us in the capital city where the Soviets thought we we're going to be, we had to quickly leave our country place because we knew that they would be looking for us there. So we lived in another city. That's where I was when the war was uh, starting. We could hear bombing and we could hear troops running back and forth, moving. And then when we returned to the country estate, we thought that the Germans were approaching it. So we had to hide in a building in a granary near the roof. And we heard the communists loading up their belongings and fleeing. So that was a scary experience because they were just three floors below. Fortunately, they did not look in the building where I was, my sister. You're saying this is what, 1940, 1941, around there? That was in uh, 1941. So you're hiding in the building. The Nazis are basically invading. And then the Soviets, the communists, are basically packing up and leaving. Yes, we arrived. uh, We were going to stay in the main house. As we were walking to the main house, some of the house, the helpers from the house saw us leaving the train station. And they said, don't come to the main house. The communists are still there. One of the maids was going to bring us to the barn, which I happened to. And she said, you can't go to the barn because the Russians might burn the barn down when they leave and you will, uh, you will perish. So they said, let's go to the granary. So we climbed on the second floor in the granary. And I was then seven years old. My sister was five. And they left us there. They took the ladder away so we couldn't climb down. So if anyone came in, they couldn't get to us. We're there for two nights, two of us. Whoa. So you and your sister are at the second floor of a granary, hiding from the communists, waiting for the Nazis to arrive. They take the ladder. How did you have something to like? How did you eat, drink those two days? What happened? Once a day or so, one of the maids brought us food and and she actually brought some books. And we just, two of us had to be there up there at that early age. What time of year? July of, end of June, July of Okay, so you, so you had some decent weather. It wasn't like the dead of winter. You were outside. No, no, no. Was, the weather was good. Okay, gotcha. Wow. Do you remember what's going through your mind when you and your sister are hiding in the second floor of a granary, no way out, a couple books, some food, wait, literally yeah. waiting for the Soviet Union to leave as the Nazis are arriving? What's going through your mind at that age? That's an interesting question. My sister actually has written a little bit about it. She said after a while, she started really shaking and being very nervous. And I turned to her. I said, be quiet. Let's just relax and enjoy where we are because this thing is going to be over soon. <laughs> so I put a little bit of a brave front. You're in the granary. At what point do you come down? What's your next step from there? That's, that's also interesting. So one morning, that was the second day we wake up. Everything is quiet. Before that, there was a lot of hustle below us because you could hear that the communists are packing up their belongings. It was a tractor school for the Communist Party. And uh, suddenly everything is quiet. The maids come and say, you're safe, come down. We came down, they were cleaning out. All the communists had left. Everything was back to normal. They were cleaning up the place. And then later on in the day, we saw trucks with German soldiers driving by. What was your initial impression of, of the Nazis when they came in the line? Well, generally, they were very happy because they had been winning very easily. The local people were also happy to see the Soviets out. And we really didn't see too much of them because the Nazis moved east, the troops, and all they did is <clears throat> what they did. And they said, the Soviets have seized all the properties. The Nazis said, you can have your property back. Well, that sounds very good. 
But at the same time, they said, since we own land, you have to have a quota. You have to give so much meat, so much wheat, so much all this to the government. So they control the economy, but at least they were not bothering us too much at that point. Okay. So they came in, they weren't roughing you guys up, executing people. They just came in and initially they just needed some food, fuel, supplies, that kind of stuff. Okay. So it's at 1941, the Soviets get driven out. The Nazis are there. Take us from there. What's what's from that point forward? What's the next step? What happens? Then the next point is they try to return the life to normal. They started up. The school was on my uh, parents' estate. So it was probably about 300 yard walk for me to the school and I attended classes and I had a wonderful time because obviously with my buddies, we could do all kinds of things because I knew the familiar surroundings and I write in the book, I got into some mischief trouble with the teachers, but I never really got into serious problem because they couldn't do too much to me because some of the teachers lived in our family's place. So you're about seven, eight years old. What was it like if you took a, a snapshot of the dinner table when you're at that age, 1941, 42, Soviets are gone, the Nazis are there, you're living with your family. Describe the average night around the dinner table. Who was there? What was going on? Since we lived in the country, there was no shortage of food because these country places are pretty self-sufficient. We have cattle, we had milk, we had hogs, we had chickens, we had eggs, we had a large garden, we even had a greenhouse with grapes. We have over 100 apple trees, pear trees. So the food was fine. I I really never cared at that age what I was eating anyway. I was just trying to be nice at the dinner table and try to get away and do my own thing. Who was there? Describe your family. It was my younger sister. My father had been deported by the uh, Soviets and killed. It was my grandmother who lived there, the housekeeper. And and that's about it. And a couple of maids, maybe, who took care of my grandmother. All right. So you mentioned your dad was deported and killed. When did that happen? How that happen? What went down there? It's horrible. I, I write this in the book, and I can briefly summarize. I can tell you exactly It was June 14, 1941. We were supposed to travel to the capital city, Riga, where we had a townhouse to visit my father, who had a managerial position running the Latvian railroads. And of course, he was dismissed uh, from his job by the communists. But my mother thought it'd be a good idea to visit him, as we usually did after the school was over. In the last minute, uh, it was in June 13th, we were ready to leave. My grandmother, who had diabetes, says, I don't want you to go. I don't want you to go. This is terrible. I want you to stay another day with me. So my mother thought, that was fine. So she said, I'm going to call my husband in Riga and tell him so. Well, she called him and it couldn't get hold of him. And because he was probably reluctant to be all the time at home anyway. So she said, We're going to take the first train in early June 14th. And so we went to bed. And because of my grandmother's uh, wishes, we stayed overnight. And I woke up the next morning around 4 o'clock. My bedroom, or 5 o'clock, was next to my mother's. And I heard trucks on the roads, which was unusual in the countryside. And I saw white in my mother's bedroom. And I said, what's going on? So I walked in there. And there was one of the maids, and she says, there's a lot of police with these trucks collecting people in the area. And and my mother said, 
I got to call my husband. So she dialed my father in Riga, and the phone was ringing for a long time. Suddenly, someone answered. And they had put in a borderer in our house, since we have a fairly large house in Riga. And he was a nice guy, an engineer. He answered the phone. And he said to my a mother, said something to the fact that we have a problem here. And she said, can I talk to my husband? And so my mother had a chance to talk to my father. He was being arrested by the KGB right at that time. And my father said to my mother, please take care of the children. Then the KGB or NKVD, or they were called those days, snatched the phone out of his hand. So my mother understood that my father was being arrested and that they had expected for us to be there because we had told the superintendent of the building that we would arrive on the 13th. So he had told the police that all of us are going to be there on the 13th. Well, we were not there. So we realized that sooner or later, they're going to start looking for us in the countryside. So my mother immediately left for Riga and I was, my sister and I were taken by hand by one of the housekeepers and brought to another city. And so we went to the other city and as we got out, we got out the train and that in, instance, I really never forgotten. I got a train and the track over there was a train with cattle cars with barbed wire windows and people screaming and shouting. And I never seen that. I was like trains and I was looking what it was. And so the housekeeper who was leading us grabbed me my hand. You cannot look at this. You got to come now. And I said, but why is police guarding that train? Just forget you ever saw it. Come, let's go to stay with your relatives. That was one of the trains where the people who were deported to, uh, to Siberia were put in them. Cattle cars with barbed wire windows, and a lot of them died on their way to Siberia. My father was shipped from the capital after this arrest, and, and that was a sad story, but I might as well finish that too. After he was arrested, he was a great fan of British clothing. He took his Harrods topcoat. Can you imagine taking Harrods topcoat in June? He knew where, where he was going, Siberia. And so, so he got sent to a gulag in northern Siberia uh, with his friends. And the conditions were so bad that people kept dying. And when December, late November came around, there was frost and so many people died. And what he did is one night in the end of November, he and he, three of his friends knew that most of them dying from malnutrition or otherwise, they went outside. One of them had traded his last personal belongings, a wedding ring for half a bottle of vodka. So three of these friends sat in, the, in front of the barracks, linked their arms, drunk a toast, and the next morning were found frozen to death. Wow. And the reason why I know this story is that one of the survivors talked to us many years later in Boston. If you were in that house the day that you called them and the KGB was there, would you have been taken with him to Siberia? Oh, sure. The, the whole family was on the list. So we if were you just were, lucky. So if you didn't listen to your grandmother and stay Correct. that extra day, you guys all would have been in that house. KGB would have arrested you and you all would have been sent to that place in Siberia. Yeah. The reason why they wanted you, what, your father just worked for the government? Like, what, what made you? Later on, I retrieved his KGB file. And, and the reason for his arrest was he was a capitalist 
belonged to the elite, was a landowner, and employed people working for him. That was his crime. Landowner, capitalist, and employed people, and in the communist regime. Landowner. That's a crime. So your father, get they come in and arrest him. They thought you were all there. By the luck of God and your grandmother, you're not there. Exactly. He gets sent off. They ship you off. You go with the maid, housekeeper. They take you. You actually see a barbed wire cattle car heading to Siberia. Your father winds up in northern Siberia. After a while, he knows it's just not going to work. Someone trades a wedding ring for a bottle of vodka, and they just sit outside in the freezing cold, do shots, link arms, and they all freeze to death and die together. Yeah. First off, thank you for sharing that. That's amazing. At what point did you realize your dad was dead? That's an interesting issue because there was no correspondence. But some of the people from that camp somehow eventually got back and the word was passed. We never received an official death certificate, but a few months later, we heard that he was dead. How old were you then? When- I, was, I was in uh, 1942, so I was nine years old. Nine. So do you remember what you felt when you heard the official word that he was no longer with you? I really didn't feel that badly because I knew that most of the people who were deported were dead. Were so he's already dead. You've already, you yeah, already that, kind of thought so he was that dead. Was, that was preconditioned uh. by that. Now, how about your mother? Where you mentioned at that time, your father was deported, your sister. Where was your mom during all this? My mother went to the capital city to find out what happened to my father. And she, of course, could not go to the, our townhouse there. She stayed with friends. And I heard that she had to wear a wig and dark glasses. And she could not, basically, they know, she knew that the police was looking for her too, but there were many others. And so she stayed with friends. But how long... Can you stay with friends? And she had one very scary incident. She stayed with a friend, and as she came down and out of the apartment building, the, the police was there checking the ID, and they said, where is your ID? My mother's ID. And that was very dangerous. And my mother says, I'm in a hurry because my friend is very sick, and I'm running to the drugstore to buy her medicine before she gets more seriously ill. The KGB said to her, show us to her. So she went upstairs where her friend was, who was in bed still. And the friend immediately understood what was going on. She said, get my medicine fast. I'm dying or else. So the KGB says, okay, just go and get the medicine. So of course, she never came back to the same place. How long did you have your mom? How long was your mom with you during this? She left on June 14th. And she came back about two weeks later or three weeks later when the Germans came in because it was difficult for her to get back because there was no transportation. The trains were not running. And my mother actually was in many ways accomplished woman. She knew how to shoot, but she really didn't like it. So she finally came by horse and carriage because one of the friends had loaned her a horse and carriage, and she was afraid to drive it through the woods because there were a lot of guerrillas or a lot of Russian troops still there. So he gave her an automatic pistol that she kept under the blanket so she could drive back and see wow. us. What a badass. Your mom's driving with an automatic pistol. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, uh, wow. You got to be adaptable. You got to be adaptable to these conditions. So take us from there. It's 1941. The Nazis are there. Yeah. Your dad gets uh, transported to Northern Siberia. How long do you stay in Latvia and what's your next? I thought by that time, I was eight, nine, life was getting back to normal. Of course, it was not normal, but normal for me because I hadn't seen too much of peacetime. So one day, 
and that was in July of 1944. We heard that the German front had collapsed and they were moving. The Russians were coming in that direction, but they were still 100 miles away and we didn't know what was going to go on and all this. I was playing in the fields and suddenly one of the uh, housekeepers came running. He says, the Russian tanks are broken through. They're 15 miles away and you've got to get out right away. Your parents are packing up. So what we did is my parents, my mother had remarried by that time. They were packing up a couple of carts and we were, we were going to head out as quickly as we horse-drawn carts don't travel well. And so we had someone join us who was a former Russian POW. I never forgotten his name. His name was Timofey. And he was helping us to get halfway to my stepfather's house so we could transfer the baggage to his carts. As we were driving, you never knew whether what we would encounter, German tanks, Russians, guerrillas, whatever. So finally, we made the transfer, and I never forgotten it. The Russian former POW, and he was very loyal to us, gave a big hug to my mother and said, Madam, may God guide you to a safer place. And so she then went to my step, we went to the stepfather's place. And what we did not realize that the stepfather's place was actually much closer to the Russians than where we left. And that was probably one of the scariest moments for me, because we were immediately loading up another car to leave the next morning. And suddenly we heard we should really be leaving sooner. They were next to a main highway and you could see traffic, people escaping from the Soviets. And suddenly around four o'clock, the traffic stopped. So we knew that at that time, the Soviets were very close. Then one single car came up the driveway, belonged to a German major who was quartered in our house. He was World War I relic. And he got out of the car and said to my mother, Madam, you better leave. The Soviets are nearby. And he went to his room to pick up his bags. The driver, whom I knew, who was a young kid, a private who had given me rides in his car, said, look, the holes in the back. We were racing here, and there was a Russian outpost not too far away. And the major just told me, speed up. And look, they try to shoot us, and there's still bullet holes in the back of the car. They didn't get us. So he said, the Russians are nearby. That was probably one of the times that I was really scared in my life. So we managed to get out. Where did we you just headed west to some friend's house. And by horse and carriage, you can't travel too fast. We stayed with these friends. And then the Germans brought in reinforcements and drove the Russians out. So then in September, late September, in October, we had a chance to return to our houses, which had been previously occupied by the Soviets. So the Soviets came in, they took your house over, they lived there. Is the house destroyed? Well, and the troops, there were troops just in there, and then they were, and then they were driven out by the Germans. What the Soviets did in my, our family place, that's another story there. We heard later on, of course, because we were back there, they line up all the men in the courtyard who were in the state, and they were all elderly, elderly men because all the young men had been drafted the military. They line them up, and they're going to shoot them. So one of the Ukrainian maids whom we had was pleading with the commissar, "Don't shoot these people! You know we need them." 
And then she finally and, and called all kinds of saints to help her. So finally she said, look, if you shoot these guys, we will have no food and we need food to help the Soviet victory. That resonated with a commissar. And he says, okay, I will not shoot all of them. I'll only shoot the two former POWs. And they shot them on the spot. Wow. And one of them was Timofey, the one who had kissed my mother. Oh, and, and Timofey, he was killed yeah. right there. He stayed behind. Robert Greene is an author. He writes The Laws of Power, The Laws of War, and The Laws of Human Nature. One law he says is don't appeal to people's mercy, appeal to what benefits them, not their mercy. Well, I think it's so accurate. And I, this woman appealed to uh, their interests. Uh, and there was another incident. So one time, when we were living under the German rule, the transportation was terrible. And my mother spoke perfect German. She had gone to University of Heidelberg. And so once in a while, they got a ride with some German officers who were driving. And so one day I was there and suddenly these, this fancy Mercedes with two German officers in black uniforms arrive and they get out there and and very correctly click their heels and greet my grandmother. My mother says, thank you for the ride. I will invite you for tea, as she did. So they were having tea. And I heard this conversation because I spoke German too. Not very good, but I did. And, uh, and they said, how was it here during the Soviet times? So my mother said it was not good because they had a tractor school. They had seized all the property and all this. And she said, they said, are there any of the Soviets there? She said, yes, the technical director of the tractor school is here. And these two SS people said, we'll finish the tea. And before we leave, we're going to go and shoot him because you don't want to have these communists around you anymore. But my mother says, he's okay. He's helping. No, no, we want to eliminate the communists. They were the SD security service, not Dave Offen as the different, the secret service for SD. And so my mother said, yeah, but if, if, if you shoot them, we need his skills to fix the mechanical appliances and the estate. We will not be able to help your war effort. So I think you better postpone his sentencing and shooting. They said, okay, wow. since you're since you're a host, we'll, we'll, we'll honor your request. Again, don't appeal to someone's mercy, appeal to their yeah, self-interest. Yeah, exactly. That's your point. Appeal their, yeah, appeal to their self-interest. Oh, my gosh. All right. So let's fast forward a little bit here. How do you and your family wind up in the United States? We felt that Europe was not very safe after World War II because communists controlled a large part of it. And my mother always felt that we should have the best opportunity for education and advancement. And we had some friends in the United States. That's how we came to Boston. What year did you leave Latvia? We Latvia, I can tell you exactly, on November 5th, 1944. Okay, so the war's still going and, on. So you left before. And we left, we, we left Germany in October of 1949. Okay, where were you when the Nazis surrendered? Where, do you remember that? Yes, of course. We were in a place of Germany called Sudetenland, which now is part of Czechoslovakia. And can you remember the moment when you heard that Hitler killed himself or the Nazis surrendered? Sure. We just remembered that we were so happy that the war was finally over. But we were worried that those days, the press, the Americans kept saying Uncle Joe Stalin was a wonderful guy. And 
we knew that if the, the Russians were only 10 miles away from us in Czechoslovakia, if they want, the Russians ever reached us, we would be deported to Siberia. So then we had to escape again because the Soviets basically took over Czechoslovakia. How'd you get out of Czech? The old-fashioned way. Uh, my mother bribed some truck drivers who were smuggling people out from Czechoslovakia to Germany. And so we got piled in a truck and headed for the border because they said they had bribed the Czech border guards and we'll have no trouble. The moment we approached the border, suddenly the Czech border guards are asked for documents and I hear the conversation. My mother was sitting in the front seat next to the truck driver. I was in the back there with my sister and my stepfather. And they said, oh, Latvia is free. There's a Soviet collection center. We'll bring you to the Soviet collection center and you can go back. We know what that meant, one-way ticket to Siberia. So my mother says, no, we want to go to Germany because we have some relatives there. My sister is there. No, I will send one of the men to accompany you to the Soviet collection center. Then fortunately, an American MP sauntered by and he said, what's going on? And the Czechs started to explain into what was going on. And my mother, who spoke English, said, sir, we're just trying to go to Germany and all this. He was surprised that she spoke good English. And he turned to the Czech and said, you're causing a traffic jam. Let this lady through. <laughs> and they listened. They and then we were, that's how we got to Germany. That was in, in, in the middle of 1945. So if that American MP did not walk by then, there's a chance that you would have went to the Soviet collection agency instead of being let through. With exactly. Photograph. I've been just lucky in my life. Wow. And obviously you don't know who that person was. Jared never saw him again. Just that one person came into your life at that one moment yeah. and changed the, yeah. the trajectory. Exactly. Of, oh my gosh. Wow. That, and I bet that person had no idea the, oh, uh, the impact absolutely. they had. That one conversation let them through. There's a traffic jam. Unbelievable. So you wind up, you go to Germany. Is that East or West? Like, is that, is that like the oh, it's communist? West, West Germany, West Germany. Okay. So you're like the American, the American side. Sector. Okay. American sector. Yeah. How long are you there? What's the, so what's your next move five, there? Five years, about five years. We lived in several places and went to school there. Okay. And what was that like? So after, after you're in, you're in the American sector, well, what was that like? Considering what we'd gone through was peaceful, I would say if you could classify the living conditions in barracks by today's standards, some agency would say they're unfit for human habitation, but we were very happy. We had enough food and we felt secure in the American zone. And how did you decide it was time to leave Germany and what's your next move from there? The opportunities did not present early enough. Some of my relatives went to Australia where you can go earlier, but because our friends had moved to Boston from Germany six months earlier and they helped us to get there. So they had the paperwork ready for us. So then you wind up, you go from Germany to Boston. Is that what you do? Correct. So how old are you when you get on the plane or boat? How do you go? How do you get the boat? We went by uh, a former troop ship. The troop ship went from Germany, actually went to New Orleans first and then to New York. And then from New York by train later on, we spent some time in New York to Boston. So you're 15 years old. You get on a troop ship. What's on there? A bunch of American GIs? What's on that troop ship when you go? No, no, they, they were not. They were all refugees coming to the United States. So you're on a refugee ship. Where do you board? Where do you get on the boat at? Germany called Bremenhofen. 
Bremenhofen. Then the next stop is what? New Orleans? New Orleans, you can't get off the ship. But I'll tell you one interesting story. So we get in the ship, go in the North Sea, and I said to myself, this is wonderful. This is a beginning trip to the United States. And the ship serves a very rich meal. I never forgotten spaghetti and unlimited amount of vanilla ice cream. Everybody eats a lot. I go on the deck. I see we are in the stormy North Seas now. People running to the railing and throwing up. Some of them don't make it. They eaten so much. To this day, I haven't eaten spaghetti because there was spaghetti all over the deck. <laughs> so people are just throwing up, not making it in spaghetti. You've never touched it again. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, man. I sounds like some people's tequila story on like spring break. You never touch it again after you see that. Um, that is crazy. So you're 15 years old. You jump on in a port in Germany. You're sailing to New Orleans. How long did that journey take? I'd say about two and a half weeks, roughly. Well, what were the conditions on this? Because ship? we went slowly to, to New Orleans one night, New Orleans for two nights. We couldn't get off the ship and then to Boston, two and a half weeks. So conditions on the ship, good, bad, okay. What were the conditions on the ship? Well, it's a converted troop ship. They, I don't remember you sleep in bunks. That's fine with me. But okay. So not, not horrible. Like, it's okay. No, everything is okay. You had to work. I was assigned to work that moved food from refrigerators to the kitchen with a young group of uh, merchant seamen. And I loved them. They were very funny. I didn't speak good English. And I had a good time. And believe it or not, when I finished this work assignment every day for about two hours, they gave me a certificate for great accomplishment. I still have it. <laughs> Diligent <Wow>. work. <laughs> so you get off in New Orleans? Like when you get to New Orleans? No, no, we got off in uh, New York. So basically, you go to New Orleans, you have to wait, then what? Then you have to sail yeah. around the Gulf and up the coast, and then you yeah. get off at New York City. Do you remember what it was like pulling into New York Harbor? Oh, yes. I was so impressed. You see all these bright lights. There were no bright lights. And the first thing I wanted to do is Times Square because I heard the neon lights, and I was truly impressed. I thought it was the most wonderful sight I'd see. Did you sail by the Statue of Liberty? Is that something you remember? Oh, yes, of course. Everybody saw that. Uh, I was very happy. What was that like when you saw that? We just felt finally freedom is here because we're far from the Russians. We know the United States took a firm stand against the Russians. Their arm is not that long to reach us here. There's going to be a great opportunity for all of us here. It's up to us to make the best of it. Now, when you got off, is that Ellis Island? Where did did you get off at? I think it was just uh, one of the piers. Really? Okay. It's pretty easy. You get off one of the piers, and we had friends who met us, and we stayed at their house at night. Their apartment. Just jumped off. What was your initial impression? Yeah. What was your initial impression of America, New York City, when you got off? I would say the lights impressed me very much. The number of cars. The other thing that would surprise me that they were living fairly far up on the east side, which is there was a lot of garbage on the streets. It was not as clean as the European cities. Mm-hmm. Those are the things. Yeah. So you get, you land in New York City, you're living with friends. So take us from there. What's your next move? Next one, uh, we moved to Boston because we felt that uh, my mother felt she had some friends there. And then, of course, we had no money. So all of us had to work. Everybody worked in something. But after a while, after a few months, my mother felt that the most important thing was for my sister and I to get the best education. And then she found a position 
that would allow us to accomplish that. And so that's what we did. We moved to Framingham, Massachusetts, which is 20 miles outside Boston. I think she made a connection through a church. We worked for a man called Mr. Dennison, who owned the biggest manufacturing companies there, and his wife and his son. The Dennisons couldn't have been nicer, more considerate to us. They were just wonderful people. And I see in your biography, The Unexpected Journey, you wound up going to Harvard and getting two degrees? Yes. Tell, tell us about that. How'd you wind up at Harvard? First, I went to Framingham High School. I arrived there in January. because, And so we went to talk to the principal of the high school. And he looked at my record and my sister's record. We missed two years of school because of Germany. My English, uh, because of war, my English was very poor. And he said, I don't know where to put him. I think I'm going to put him in the senior year. That would be equivalent to his age. And he can go for six months and then repeat next year. And then he'd be ready for college. I started school right away in January. I did not like to repeat uh, a year. I had the ability to memorize things very easily. That's one of the things I have. So I just started memorizing everything. And the net result was that I not only could finish the school, uh, but graduated with honors in six months. Wow. But, I wanted, but I wanted to go to Harvard and any good school. And the counselor said at the high school, your English isn't good enough. Why don't you try Boston University? Because they have a number of foreign students. They know how to handle it. And I said, I try anything. So then I wound up going to Boston University. I got, and after the first year, I got the Professor Augustus Howard Buck Scholarship awarded the most outstanding student with great future potential or something. And that was paid all my expenses for college and two years. I felt BU was wonderful to me. But that was not enough challenge. I would like to go to Harvard. And then I applied to Harvard as a transfer student. And they take less than 1% of those who apply as transfer students for various reasons. So the hopes were not very high. Also, I would lose my good scholarship at Boston University. But I thought it was worth a chance. And I did get into Harvard. Wow. What did you study? And then I got into Harvard, and then uh, I added up the things, and Harvard, of course, wouldn't give the scholarships, and added up the money, and we were short. My mother said, don't worry. And only years later, I found out that she had borrowed money to make my first year at Harvard possible. What did you want? What were your degrees in Harvard? I don't want to take too much of your time, but I studied international affairs and government. Okay. And I was very lucky that the first person whom I studied with was the dean, George McGregor Bundy, who became the national security advisor to Kennedy. Yep. And then I worked last year on a thesis with Zig Brzezinski, who became the national security advisor to Carter. And he urged me to pursue an academic career which I decided not to because I wanted to lead a better lifestyle. So it, at Harvard, you basically connected with President Kennedy's national security advisor and yeah. President Jimmy Carter's national security advisor. Yeah. And they, they later, were, yeah, they, they became later, later security advisor. And Zig Brzezinski actually was my advisor and tutor for one year. And as I said, he urged me to go in academia. 
how long did you keep relationships up with uh, the two gentlemen? After I told Zig that I was going to go to Harvard Business School, he lost interest. But I have to add this to you because I don't want you to put in the podcast. Zig was a charismatic, very bright, very promotional guy. And one time I saw him on a private jet to Texaco and I was invited by one of the chairman of the board. And he saw me, he says, oh, John, how are you? I haven't seen you for years. What you've been doing? <laughs> right, amazing. Two, two incredible people in history. You, you basically mentored you. When you come out of Harvard, what type of business did you I didn't in any business. I wanted to go to graduate school right away. So I applied to Harvard Law School, Harvard Business School, and a few other schools. I got into all of them, except I hadn't heard from Harvard Business School. And so I called them up and I said, it's April and I'd like to make a decision. They said, Mr. Livens, you're 21 and our average age is 28. And we, our suggestion is that you have two years of practical business experience. And we're looking people with varied experience. I said, I have varied experience. Yes, she said, Mr. he said, Mr. Livens, I see you. You worked for a manufacturing company. You were digging ditches. You worked as a lifeguard, you worked as a bartender, and you had all kinds of other jobs. What we really need, mean is managerial experience, and you don't have to seem to have much. I said, look, I have decided to go to graduate school right away. If you don't take me, I go to Harvard Law School. Got into business school two weeks later. And then would you get your MBA from Harvard? Is that what you did? Yes, but what happened was, I, after the first year, I almost got drafted. And for what, Korea? What, what, what was? No, that was after Korea. And so I, I almost got drafted. And so my friends had gone to the Navy recruiting office and got to Navy Officers Candidate School in Newport. And so I went down there and they said, sorry, our class is a fool. I said, what do I do then? You can be private in the Army for two years. And I said, I don't think that appeals to me right away. Then there was a guy from the Navy who was inspecting the office. He said, you seem to be unhappy about it. I said, yes. And I told him my story. He said to me, we have another program. We can give you a deferment right away. But you got to be in really good physical shape and good health. And that, that would lead you to, uh, to a commission. He says, by the way, have you ever thought of flying? I had never been in the airplane. So my answer was, this is an aviation program. I said, it sounds good to me if I get the permit. <laughs> so then I wound up three years in the Navy flying. What did you fly? AD5W. Where did you start? Where, where part of the world were you at flying? I was, my home base was actually Quonset Point in Rhode Island. Wow. But I was on the, I was on the aircraft carrier USS Intrepid, which is a museum. <laughs> <laughs> So you basically fly for the Navy, time. you fly three years for the Navy on the USS Intrepid. What did you do after that? Remarkable. Went back to business school, finished business school. Okay. Got your business degree. And then what did you do? Yeah. What would you do from there? Graduate Harvard? I'm doing some consulting for a large manufacturing firm for about three years, two years. And I did not find that very promising. And then I was very lucky to get a job with an outstanding and very successful and prestigious investment management firm in Boston. 
Cool. Which one was that? You mind sharing? Who'd you get? Who, it was who, State Street Research and Management, right. started by some smart, proper Bostonians, Cabot, Saltonstall, and Payne, and they managed the Harvard Endowment and other big accounts. So I was just very lucky. How long did you do that for? I worked there until we sold the company in 1984. Okay. 84 then. So you're there to 84. You sell the company. What's your next move from 84? I was a partner of the company. And and when we sold the company, I was actually financially independent at that time. Fantastic. Uh, but, but, but I decided to work. And then eventually I became president of a small investment firm, which really I didn't make much money, but I had a lot of fun. I did a lot of skiing and traveling. Wow. That's such an incredible story. So here you are now living in Florida. You have your autobiography that you've written, An Unexpected Journey, available on Amazon. How would you describe the opportunity the United States gave you once you landed in New York City? Right after World War II? I would say it's a great feeling of freedom and independence. And I summarized it when I wrote in the very beginning of the book and the preface how I felt uh, when I was going. And this is what I wrote. Perhaps the reason where the lights look so much brighter, the colors so much more vibrant, the laughter so much more cheerful, and the joy so much more intense was because I would have been denied the opportunity to experience this had it not been for the freedom and democracy of the United States. No wonder all this meant so much to me. Wow. That is, wow, that's phenomenal. Looking back, if you had to pass on some life lessons of your amazing story from growing up in Latvia to the time you're escaping the Soviets, escaping the Nazis, then escaping the Soviets again, sneaking past those Czech border guards, the cross-ocean voyage on the troop transport, winding up in New York City, going to Harvard, Boston U, being mentored by two future national security advisors, the Kennedy and Carter. If you were were to pass on some life lessons to to the next generation, what would you say? If I pass on my life lessons, I have to be exhibit some restraint to condense them. And I think I would start out with one saying this. In my case, this is particularly true. Never give up hope. And you can strive toward your goal, even if unforeseen circumstances temporarily stifle your progress. If you believe in your goals, you are likely to reach them. And if even if you don't, you will have the satisfaction of having tried your best. The greatest failure in life is not to have tried. Remember, success is so much sweeter after some disappointments along the way. Then I would also say that we can't always predict what's going to happen, and that ties together. And, and this is in the back of the book, and it is, We as humans cannot always change or control our circumstances. We anticipate all the obstacles in our path. However, we can decide on our attitude and actions in overcoming the difficulties we face. This will define our character, values, and faith. The unconditional love and support of family makes obstacles easier to overcome And these are values that parents can pass on to the next generation. No matter what its form, faith is of immeasurable help in time of crisis. You must cultivate it, nourish it throughout life. 
In the turmoil of war, people who had faith and faced imminent danger could do that with calmness and morality, inspiring others. So wow. those are some of the ideas. So just to synthesize there, the three things I wrote down. One, never give up hope. Two, you have to believe. Before anything happens, the belief has to be there. And the third one, you can't always control the obstacles that the world throws at you, but yeah. you can always choose your attitude and the actions you do in response. Yeah. That's fantastic. Wrapping up here, John, if you could go back and talk to your mom and your dad back in Latvia before all this chaos and craziness happened, say you're sitting at the dinner table with them, what would you want to tell them? I said that I had hoped and know that I had lived a life they, they would have wanted me to, to adhere to the principles of integrity, honesty, and cherish the same values that they, impair, uh, that they really led me to believe in. So I've been true to those values, true to the family, and true to my friends. That's great. So loyalty is very important. Absolutely. Last question. Sometimes this question works, sometimes it doesn't, but I have to ask you, John, if you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say that would define you? Never give up. Never give up. Wow. That is about as good as a spot to end as any. John Livens, it's been an honor to speak with you, sir. The book is An Unexpected Journey, the autobiography of John Livens. It's just fantastic. John, your story is remarkable. Thank you for sharing it. It gives hope in America, hearing that and how luck and skill and tenacity all come together to make you where you are. I just love that you had such great business success once you got here to the country. I love that you worked with two national security advisors. How much did you stay in touch with the national security advisors, the Kennedy and Carter? No, I did not much because uh, Bundy became the national security advisor and he became a very important person at Harvard. So I was just a lowly undergraduate and Zig left Harvard. He was a charismatic person. He convinced Lawrence Rockefeller to set up the Russian Research Center at Columbia University and made them head. So they're, they, you know, they were, what I'm saying is that these guys were not only brilliant academicians, they were hell of a good promoters. <laughs> yeah, good salespeople. Thank you for sharing your stories. Thank you for joining us today. And it's been an honor to speak with you, sir. Thank you. The same to you. Bye-bye.